Section 2 of An Explorer in the Air Service. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Asterix. An Explorer in the Air Service by Hiram Bingham. Toronto and the Royal Flying Corps. Chapter 2 toronto and the royal flying corps the contrast between washington and toronto in the first week of may nineteen seventeen was very striking both cities were at war but one had scarcely begun to realize it as yet while the other could not forget it for a minute washington was at that time scarcely any different from its ordinary self during the sessions of congress our army officers were not in uniform although we had been at war nearly a month the orders came a week or two later i never succeeded in discovering whether the delay was caused by the disinclination of the secretary of war to change from a peace to a war basis or whether some of the highest staff officers who had been putting on weight at washington for a number of years without the necessity of wearing service uniforms caused the delay in order that they might have time to get proper sizes made before the order was published toronto was full of men in uniform officers driving madly about in government cars crippled soldiers sunning themselves on warm corners near great hospitals gigantic posters urging further enlistments recruits training in quiet streets toronto did more than her share toward providing those splendid troops that canada so early sent to the western front the clubs and hotels of washington were filled with eager men in the prime of life anxious to find some way of serving their country the hotels and clubs in toronto if you overlooked the presence of officers who had been invalided home were sad and deserted most of the men bearing marks of anxiety or signs of mourning among the soldiers in toronto none carried themselves with quite such a swagger and none saluted their officers so smartly as those who wore in white letters across their sleeves the words royal flying corps and incidentally none seemed to have so many admirers on the street many of them had recently come over from england to aid in carrying out the new project whereby canadian aviators and their more venturesome friends from across the border might receive preliminary and advanced training before being sent abroad our conference at toronto was most interesting three professors from each of the selected universities chosen in the main from the technical faculties came prepared to spend several days in visiting the flying schools attending classes at the school of military aeronautics at the university of toronto and listening to veterans of the world war we were most courteously received by general then lieutenant colonel hoare and major allen at the headquarters of the royal flying corps and given every facility for studying their methods and administration and the course of study which they had laid down we were furnished with typewritten copies of all the lectures used at their school of military aeronautics and were given sets of textbooks and service regulations everything was done to make us feel that although we had been unaccountably long in joining the common cause against the hun 
now that we had come in we were to be on a basis of perfect equality with those who had been sacrificing everything for two years and a half on the day following our arrival it was arranged that we should go out to camp borden some seventy-five miles from toronto at that time this was by far the largest and most important flying field outside of europe we were proud to find it commanded by an american once the captain of a victorious harvard crew major oliver d philly he had been one of the first americans to join the british forces in the war and had been for many months on the western front seriously injured in an airplane accident he had recovered sufficiently to be placed in charge of this great school afterwards he accepted general squire's invitation to come into our service was commissioned lieutenant-colonel placed in charge of the observer's school at fort sill and later had charge of training american handley page squadrons in england colonel philly gave us a most instructive day the best part of which was the opportunity to converse with the most experienced officers of the royal flying corps who were on his staff he knew what sort of boys we would have to train and emphasized the kind of personnel needed he impressed it upon the university representatives that the pilot was far from being a flying chauffeur as some seem to think true his power came from a gasoline motor and the wheels beneath him were protected by pneumatic tires but here the simile ended as a matter of fact said the colonel the pilot is more like the knight of old or the modern cavalry officer he must first of all be to quote the hackneyed phrase an officer and a gentleman he must be the kind of man whose honour is never left out of consideration he must be as highly educated as possible in order that he may the more readily learn to adapt himself to rapidly changing tactics of the land army as well as the air forces he must be resourceful keen quick and determined the colonel said that polo players and football quarterbacks made excellent pilots he did not recommend crewmen a never-to-be-forgotten impression was made on the delegation by captain bell irving the officer in charge of the repair shop a member of a british columbia family which greatly distinguished itself in the war captain bell irving had been in the first canadian force to be sent over and after having been on the western front for some time and wounded once or twice had joined the flying corps and become a pilot in an observation squadron one day his observer had succeeded in securing some very important photographs when a shrapnel ball from a german anti-aircraft battery struck him in the temple passed above his eye and lodged itself above the brain at first he was unconscious then as the machine fell out of control he regained consciousness and instinctively realized the precarious condition of his observer and the importance of getting his photographs back within the british lines wiping the blood from his face with his sleeve he successfully piloted the machine back for nine miles and landed in safety not far from his own aerodrome before again becoming unconscious the bullet was still in his head since the surgeons had not dared to attempt to extract it and at times it gave him frightful pain so that he could scarcely see but he was doing splendid work in his new job and was full of courageous optimism his few words of assurance that it was most important 
to select the pilots with great care sank deeply into the hearts of the men who were to be the guiding spirits in the new united states schools of military aeronautics and left a profound impression it was borne in on us by all those with whom we talked that the first necessity in the air service was to get the right type of personnel fellows of quick clear intelligence mentally acute and physically fit that the next thing was to make soldiers of them and teach them the value of military discipline finally that we should eliminate the unfit as fast as possible and avoid giving them flying instruction unless they prove themselves to be morally physically and mentally worthy of receiving the most expensive education in the world the next few days were spent attending as many classes as possible in the buildings of the university where the royal flying corps had established its local school of military aeronautics the adjutant of the school a keen young wounded veteran of the war was the son of one of the professors at the university whose name is well known in our historical circles I mention this relationship because it enables me to illustrate how much better our allies kept their military secrets than we did. The day after seeing the great flying school at Camp Borden, I had the honor of lunching with this officer's mother and father. The president of the university was one of the guests. The conversation naturally traveled around to aviation, and the wonder was expressed as to where the Royal Flying Corps would put its new big flying school. It had been on the tip of my tongue to speak about our amazement at what we had seen the day before at Camp Borden, when I suddenly realized that the secret of what was being done out there was so well kept that neither the president of the university, which was housing the ground school, nor the father and mother of the young veteran aviator, who was its adjutant, was aware of what was going on in the course of time the work at camp borden came to be well known but this incident and the caution of our allies gave us american delegates a new sense of the importance of keeping our mouths shut concerning the things that were so generously laid open to us it made us appreciate all the more the hearty cooperation of our new allies and we marveled at their willingness to offer us so freely all the secrets that they had learned at the cost of so much blood and treasure we found that the University of Toronto was supplying the Royal Flying Corps with buildings and grounds, but that most of the instructors were veterans of the Western Front, either pilots who had been injured or become stale, or non-commissioned officers of long experience as sergeant instructors. While we could not hope to secure similar teaching personnel for our own schools of military aeronautics, it was believed that by using trained instructors and giving them the very latest information as a basis for their lectures, we might not fall so very far behind our model. Conferences with various instructors at the ground school developed the fact, which we had occasion later to notice repeatedly, that the veterans of the Western Front differed radically on the importance of the various subjects of study and the necessity for their being taught more or less thoroughly all were agreed however that undisciplined unmilitary pilots were extremely undesirable and that any youth who followed individualistic tendencies to such a degree as to make him appear to be a poor soldier should not be trained as a pilot they said he would soon come to grief over the lines where team play was so essential 
and where the carrying out of missions exactly as ordered was so easy to avoid if the pilot were so inclined or preferred to go after a hun we learn that the principle was adopted of admitting a new class of students each week and graduating them as they were needed in the flying school the idea was to furnish a steady stream of pupils to the teachers of preliminary flying and to eliminate the undesirables at the relatively inexpensive ground school before they should have any opportunity of wasting the valuable time of flying instructors and the very expensive facilities offered on an aerodrome we felt that we could not do better than to copy as nearly as possible the curriculum adopted by the royal flying corps after more than two years of war on the advice of several of the chief instructors we enlarged the course in various particulars so as to make it cover eight weeks instead of six later this was still further extended great stress was laid on the importance of developing ability to observe artillery fire and to cooperate with both artillery and infantry the importance of a thorough knowledge of the machine gun the internal combustion motor and wireless telegraphy was emphasized we decided to adopt the british method of dividing the course into two parts the first of three weeks chiefly military studies and infantry drill the second of five weeks technical aeronautics with particular emphasis on guns and motors these preliminaries having been decided and a tentative program of studies adopted the delegates hastened back to their respective universities to rush the preparation for students who had already passed their entrance examinations as given by the aviation examining boards in various cities and who were anxious to commence their training even though it meant first going to a ground school instead of being immediately put in an airplane as so many of them hoped would be the case our meetings in toronto were concluded on may the eleventh ten days later the six new schools of military aeronautics were ready to receive and were actually receiving their first students of course special faculty meetings had to be held trustees had to vote credits laboratories and classrooms had to be hastily adjusted to meet new demands lectures on new subjects had to be prepared from the material obtained in toronto and plans made to receive a small army post under the command of a recent graduate of west point and san diego in one case at the university of california ground was immediately broken on the campus for a new building whose plans had been drawn on the train by the toronto delegates a building designed to accommodate exactly the needs of the new school in every case serious dislocations had to be quickly performed it seemed incredible that they could be ready in ten days small wonder that general squire endorsed my letter of may the thirteenth informing him that the universities would be able to commence instruction in the cadet schools not later than monday may the twenty first splendid and much pleased go ahead full steam and the universities made good if one did not know the tremendous loyalty and self-sacrifice that pervades american universities their immediate response to the new demands of the army air service would have been incredible had it only been as easy to build training planes and to obtain well-equipped flying schools as it was to secure the full cooperation of enthusiastic high-grade universities and use their equipment the problem of sending american aviators to the front would have been very much simpler End of toronto 
and the Royal Flying Corps.